Jordan. Jordan. Jordan, where's Jordan? Jordan, where are you? He was supposed to be here. F he was supposed to be here for our Trolls Two World Tour episode. He was so excited for the Trolls Two World Tour episode. <laughs> he specifically requested Trolls Two World Tour. It was his idea <laughs> to do Trolls Two World Tour. Jordan. Jordan. Trolls Two World Tour. Trolls Two World Tour. <laughs> I can't stop saying Trolls Two World Tour. Trolls Two World Tour. He was gonna predict. He was gonna predict all the music in it that he wanted to listen to. I heard he was gonna sing some of the music from Trolls Two World Tour. He already had the soundtrack on Amazon Prime. I heard he had the vinyl on the way. This was like his thing. What is he doing, Jordan? This was your episode, buddy. It was made for you. We did this for you. On your shoulders. Everybody knows you're you. the possible spoilers resident Trolls fan. Alright, I hope this thing is on. I have stolen the crystal microphone of the Possible Spoilers gang in order to bring you an episode on Final Fantasy VII Remake. That's right, this is an episode where we put in all Jordans. I'm Jordan. I'm Jordan. I'm Jordan. And I'm Jordan. And welcome to the Possible Spoilers Spoilers Almanac Edition of Final Fantasy VII. 7 Remake. This is going to be our post-discussion of uh, the plot details that happened in Final Fantasy 7 Remake. If you have not played the game yet, stop this podcast right now, go play the game uh, as soon as you uh, have the ability to, and make sure you play until the end, because we, I am going to be spoiling absolutely everything about this game today. I have to go rogue this uh, episode to talk about Final Fantasy VII Remake and the massive plot happenings that are going on uh, with this game. And I'm going rogue uh, for the biggest reason is the the rest of the gang are not huge Final Fantasy fans, and I don't think that they've played the game yet. And the, the biggest reason, however, is I just need to get my thoughts down so you all can join me in the absolute insanity that unfolds in the last, I don't know, 30 minutes of the game's plot. Uh, again, massive spoilers. I'm going to be talking about the massive plot ramifications that happen at the main, main end of Chapter 18 of Final Fantasy VII R. So without further ado, let's get into it. Let me go to my handy-dandy little five-page document that I had to type up to make sense of all of my thoughts for today. First things first, uh, in the description here, I'm going to also be linking you to a video that a, a, a Twitch streamer and a YouTuber by the name of Maximilian Dude put together uh, that hopefully uh, will help you all if you have any questions. A lot of the stuff that I, I had questions about, Max talks a little bit about those, but I'm going to go into greater detail on it uh, and, and deviate from some of Max's thoughts. Uh, first place. So there will be a link to that. Um, but I do recommend checking out his video. The first part of his stream is him talking about the plot. Uh, and I do recommend that video. So first thing first, uh, some people are upset about the ending. I understand why people are angry. I understand why people are uh, worried about where this game might be going. 
So, quick recap for the events of Final Fantasy VII are. What happens at the end of uh, Chapter 18? The uh, whispers, the, the things that you've been encountering the entire game that look like ghosts, essentially control fate. And at the end of uh, Chapter 18, Sephiroth... Uh, through a series of through a series of misunderstood illusions, convinces the team to literally destroy fate and destiny in the forms of these whispers. The whispers themselves are the concentrated will of the planet, and they want the party, they want Cloud and everyone else to play events out as a one-to-one recreation of. The original Final Fantasy VII back in back in the PlayStation era, which was released in 1997. At the end of Chapter 18, Cloud and Company destroy fate. They they literally undo fate as it should have played out in uh, in Final Fantasy VII Remake. And at the end, they have a big massive fight with Final Fa- or with uh, Sephiroth. And that's essentially where the game ends. After they defeat Sephiroth, he gives Cloud a couple of cryptic. Uh, one-liners and cryptic hints that I'm going to talk about later, uh, assuming that my brain still works by the end of this uh, recording. And uh, we see that, essentially, the timelines diverge in various ways. What you as the player have effectively done in Final Fantasy VII Remake fractures the timeline of how the plot for Final Fantasy VII should play out. Because the the developers have used this as a meta-commentary on the series at large. So, it's worth noting, things may not play out as a one-to-one recreation of the original Final Fantasy VII from here on out. Whenever Episode Two comes out, uh, as of this recording, there hasn't been a release date for it, things are probably going to change or be expanded on, much like some of the plot details were for... Remake. A lot of the stuff that happens in Remake was not present in the original Final Fantasy VII. And people are upset about this. Some people are excited about it as well. I, for one, am excited about it. And in this video, I'm going to tell you why the ending shouldn't bother you. Why you should be okay uh, with the ending of Final Fantasy VII Remake. And here it is. Here's the big thesis statement for this podcast. Uh, The reason that you shouldn't uh, that you shouldn't be worried about uh, the plot of Final Fantasy VII Remake is the ending of Remake shows that the ending is now freed up. The remake is now free to surprise you in ways that you simply wouldn't have been able to be surprised about the remake. Uh, people, people were feeling very comfortable. And I, as a player was feeling very comfortable uh, imagining how things are going to play out and feeling very confident in the fact that, like, oh, well, I know how all of this is going to make sense. Uh, But now, right, now that fate has been destroyed, now that the original storyline of Final Fantasy VII has been narratively unshackled, you, you as the player can now feel free to be surprised, you can be shocked, you can... Experience all of those emotions that you would have experienced back in 1997 when you first played Final Fantasy VII, or whatever year you maybe got around to playing Final Fantasy VII. Now all of those moments can be surprising and shocking to you again because you're freed from that past idea. 
of what you thought Final Fantasy VII was going to be or even has to be. And I think that's really, really interesting because now this storyline can go anywhere. They can kind of do anything with this and any change that they make is going to make you think, oh man, well, what, what's going to happen now? And, you know, this doesn't match up with what I knew. Basically, as a Final Fantasy VII fan, a lot of people are upset about this. Uh, I don't think you should be. As a fan of the original Final Fantasy VII, I don't think you should be because now, regardless of what happens, you're going to be surprised. And I think that's really, really interesting. This game is trying to do something different. It's trying to do something exciting. And that is pretty cool. So I'm going to jump into this discussion on timelines. So here we go. This gets a little bit uh, convoluted and a little bit uh, crazy. So just bear with me here. The biggest thing that we need to take away from the remake is that there are at least three different timelines that we know of, uh, I, that I can pinpoint at least. There is the original Final Fantasy VII that I'm, for, for the sake of argument, I'm just going to refer to as OG Seven from now on. And that means that the original Final Fantasy VII, OG Seven, happens normally. That timeline is still concurrent. That timeline is still present. This is the regular 97 Final Fantasy that we all know and love from the original PlayStation days. The next timeline that's present is the remake timeline. And this is the timeline that uh, we, as the players of Final Fantasy VII, play through and we kill the Harbinger, the Whisper Harbinger, and we end fate. And at that point, that's where the timeline diverges. All right, so we, we essentially have two timelines that, that diverge. If, if you've watched Avengers Endgame, it's going to be kind of like that when the Ancient One is describing uh, how time works. I, I think it's going to be fairly similar to this. OG7 timeline fractures directly at the moment where Cloud and company kill the Whisper Harbinger. And at that moment, another timeline is formed where the characters are no longer bound to their fate. We also learn at the main end of the game that there is quite possibly another timeline that exists as well. And this would be a timeline where Zack lives. Now, if you play the original Final Fantasy VII, again, major spoilers in here. If you play the original Final Fantasy VII, you know that Cloud's entire shtick about being a soldier and, and being... Uh, you know, this cool ex-mercenary and, and this member of Shinra. Uh, all of that is essentially a lie. Cloud was never a member of Soldier. Instead, his best friend, Zack, was a member of Soldier. And Cloud, of course, is a, a science experiment conducted uh, and, and was a human experiment unwillingly, experimented on by Professor Hojo. Uh, Zack breaks free and carries Cloud with him in... In OG7 timeline, Zack should have died, and at that moment, Cloud's psyche completely breaks, and he absorbs Zack's memories of being in Soldier with his own and constructs this, uh, this, this identity for himself where he was originally a soldier. That doesn't happen. However, Zack instead lives through uh, the uh, assassination attempt on him, walks back into Midgar with Cloud, and that's kind of where that plot line ends. We don't know what's going to happen there, uh, but I think it's kind of interesting to see Zack lives. 
Um, and that, that to me, represents a third timeline, another branching timeline that was also created when fate was not able to play out as it should have. All right, The Whispers themselves can't control fate anymore because the characters ended fate. Uh, so, in, in the third timeline, Zack lives, Cloud doesn't inherit Zack's memories, presumably, uh, and it's left kind of unclear. We see Zack literally on the outskirts uh, of Midgar walking back into Midgar, and that should not have happened. So there are three timelines at this point. OG7, remake timeline, and some sort of timeline where Zack lives and Cloud doesn't inherit Zack's memories. However, there's another timeline. I'm sounding like Oprah now. You get a timeline, you get a timeline. Look under your chairs! There's possibly a fourth timeline. Uh, we see there's there's another scene where Biggs lives. Biggs survives, and, and he should not have. In OG7, he dies. He's assumed dead in Remake. Uh, it's possible that there's a fourth timeline created where Biggs and Jesse and Wedge possibly all survive. Uh, we see the Whispers carry uh, Wedge away, but we never actually see uh, him get hurt. He's The screen literally fades to black before that happens. We see that Biggs is presumably alive. He's in the he's he's recovering in the orphanage, and it's unclear whether or not Jesse survives. She might have lived. We see her ribbon. We see the gloves sitting right beside Biggs's right beside Biggs's body on the dresser. This either means to me that either she survived and she left those items on the dresser and she's somewhere kind of doing something in Sector Five, or. Uh, she died as a result of her wounds, and those are going to be mementos. Someone gathered those up and left them by Biggs so that when he wakes up, he can remember Jesse. I'm, I'm on the fence here. I, th I think regardless of what timeline this is taking place in, whether this is in the Zack Lives timeline or if this is another fourth timeline, I'm not quite sure if Jesse is alive or not. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that she lived, but I think there's a loophole with the Whispers. Uh, keep in mind, every time the Whispers show up in Remake, they're trying to put history and fate back in the direction it goes. So every time the characters do something that didn't happen in OG7, the Whispers step in and try to correct history's course. Remember, Jesse. we see exactly how Jesse gets hurt and how she presumably gets her, her life-ending injuries in Remake is a grenade blows up directly in her face because the Whispers got in the way of her throwing the grenade. There's no implication of that in OG7. OG7, and it's unclear exactly how she dies or how she's wounded, but it's worth noting it was not from a grenade exploding in her face point blank. That scene does not exist in OG7. You can look it up for, your, for yourself if you want. Um, so that already means to me that because the Whispers are having to interfere so much, they themselves are also changing fate and changing destiny. And that doesn't bode well for a lot of characters who should have died that ultimately didn't. So that means it's possible that a lot of characters who may end up dying over the course of um, Remake may actually live. We seem to have confirmation that Biggs is going to be one of those characters. It's unclear about Jesse. But I think it's possible she's alive too. All right. So beyond that, uh, it's worth noting 
Um, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I, I knew there was going to be some kind of meta commentary about all of this. Because the moment that Cloud falls off of the platform where they fight Airbuster and into Aerith's church, there's a scene where Cloud either has a vision or gets information that he should not know at that moment. So there are at least four characters that I'm going to talk about and be hopefully brief who are aware that time isn't progressing as normal. The first one of those is Cloud. At the start of chapter 6, before Cloud awakens in Aerith's church, he has a dream or a vision where he's talking to someone. And on the first viewing, I assumed this person is either Zack or the real Cloud, the, the, the subconscious Cloud, right, who's fighting back against Cloud's false memories. But if you go back and rewatch this scene, it's possible that this is Cloud's alternate timeline self or, or something similar where Cloud is also getting these minor uh, precognitive moments where he's able to see what's going to happen. All right, so Cloud is the first character who is aware on a minor level that something is wrong, something is off in this alternate history of Remake. The second character is Aerith, and she's the most obvious party member who we suspect that something's wrong or something's off, all right? Um, she lingers, uh, early on in the story. She, she leaves immediately in OG7. When Cloud buys the flower, she, she hightails it out of there. She doesn't do that in Remake. She lingers for a moment. She seems to be telling Cloud something. Uh, she looks like she wants to tell him something. And then the whispers intervene and basically chase her away. There are a couple of other scenes where, where Aerith has information or has ideas that she simply shouldn't or that she shouldn't know. Uh, these include, uh, she tells, she knows that Cloud is a mercenary before he tells her. She also knows who and what the Whispers are. Uh, as a result of her being of the Cetra line, she, she knows she can listen to the planet. She also, at one point, uh, she automatically knows who Tifa and Marlene are before Cloud or anyone else has ever told her about Tifa or Marlene. Um, and, and she's never met these characters before. The most impressive scene uh, where we learn that she knows something is up is if you get her scene in Chapter 14, if you get her resolution scene in Chapter 14, she comes to Cloud in a dream or a vision uh, at night and tells Cloud that he can't fall in love with her for a couple of reasons. The, the reason that she tells him is because the feelings that he's feeling for her that he thinks are love, you know, burgeoning romance between these two characters who just met each other, because it will hurt him. Now, the first viewing of that, it's easy to assume that she's telling him this because those feelings that he's feeling for Aerith could very well be Zack's romantic feelings for Aerith, because remember, Cloud absorbed a lot of Zack's memories and personality um, when Zack would have died. However, she also hints that uh, she knows that she will die. She says that she wants to enjoy every single moment and every single uh, day because one day she knows that she will have to die. And this seems to indicate to me that she knows that Sephiroth is going to end up killing her uh, when she is trying uh, to summon Holy. 
To me, it's unclear if her knowledge is absolute. It's also possible that uh, due to some prior defeat of the Whisper Harbinger, she's afraid of, of deviating too far from the OG7 timeline. I'm not sure that she really understands or really knows absolutely everything that's going on. The game, the game can't really... It, it, it doesn't really tell you whether she knows 100% what's going on. To me, it seems more like she's aware that something is wrong rather than she knows verbatim, you know, the the things that they're going to eat, the how many days they're going to sleep on the road. You know, I don't think she knows the nitty-gritty details, but I think she knows a lot of it, All right? Because, again, the whispers are preventing her from sharing her thoughts on this matter up until they're destroyed. So maybe that's something they're going to do in part two. Maybe she warns them about what's going to happen. Um, so now that the Whispers are gone, dead, defeated, right, she might be more free to share her thoughts more freely. Next up, I'm going to try and keep this moving, Sephiroth. To me, this makes Sephiroth far more threatening than he ever has been, even in OG7, and I know that's a bit of a heretical statement to make, so let me explain my thoughts on it. Uh, I think it's worth noting in, in original seven, Sephiroth wasn't that much of a, a, a physical barrier to the player. Every time that Sephiroth shows up in the original, he is taking the form from one of Genova's body parts in much the same way that he's shape-shifting the, the Sephiroth clones to look and act like him. He, he did the same thing in the original Final Fantasy VII. And now Sephiroth seemingly has similar powers to Advent Children Sephiroth, which is really interesting to me because Sephiroth in that movie is able to take control of Kadaja's body and morph Kadaja's body into a manifestation of himself. And this is something that Sephiroth does in Remake where he hijacks Marco's body in order to kill President Shinra um, and, and kill Barrett enough so that the planet has to revive Barrett. I would argue that Sephiroth knows everything that happens in OG7, and possibly Advent Children as well. He's the only character, to me, that I'm seeing with perfect knowledge of the events of OG7. And he's manipulating everything, right? He manipulates Cloud uh, into killing the Whispers, because that means that the original timeline has been uh, deviated from, and this means Sephiroth now has a chance to actually win. That's why I think Sephiroth is more threatening now than he ever has been before. Next up, Red 13. This one, I think, uh, I haven't heard any discussion on Red 13. Maybe someone else has, and, and you know, I'm, I'm playing this up too much, but Red 13 st sticks out to me a lot. It's worth noting, Red 13 was completely feral uh, before Aerith touches him. And that wasn't necessarily something that was present in the original. He, he was hostile, but he immediately says that he's joking in original Final Fantasy VII. He doesn't seem to be joking in Remake. And Aerith touches him and gives him a vision um, and, and gives him clarity in a lot of the same ways that it looks like the Whispers are doing to the party... Uh, when they're fighting the Whisper Harbinger. And Red 13, to me, knows something. He seems to understand a lot of stuff about uh, the Whispers. Uh, and this is something that the, the game hints at, but I don't think it ever clarifies. 
he, he knows something. When the Harbinger gives the party a preview of the future, this would have been the actual end of OG7, Red 13, you know, several hundred years into the future, is running back to Midgar. And Midgar is dilapidated, it's ruined, nature is starting to take over, all, presumably all of humanity is gone, dead, something. Red 13 actually turns away from the party, right? They ask him specifically, what was that? Red 13 averts his gaze from the party in chapter 18 um, and doesn't comment on it. And at first, my first thought was, well, it makes sense that Red would know something. Presumably, he's talked to Bugenhagen. He knows something about the planet. There's going to be some discussion of Red 13, I think, being similar to Aerith in that, you know, he's probably not of ancient blood. I think that would be a completely bizarre stretch to make. But I, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that he might know something about how the planet works and what its thoughts are. Um, and that might be something that the that the remake may expand on in the Cosmo Canyon section of the game and with Bugenhagen. Sort of actually in, in OG7, Bugenhagen sort of helps the party understand a lot of the plot details going on. So I'm, I'm calling that right now. I think Red is going to be more of a focus in the plot because if you go back to the original, um, if you go back to OG7, he really isn't that integral to the plot other than he's the party's contact with Bugenhagen. Uh, so Red 13, check that out. Uh, next up, Sephiroth. I want to get back to talking about Sephiroth. The VR display about the Ancients is probably my favorite scene from the entire remake because it actually does a good job of expanding them on the Ancients in ways that the original didn't. And Sephiroth somehow hijacks the VR display. I'm assuming that it's not so much he hijacked the technology in the room, but after thinking about this, I think it's more he sort of hijacks the party's perception, right? And he's giving them an illusion. I did see some discussion online. I wanted to try and give my thoughts on this about why Cloud and company are willing to destroy the Harbinger to avoid the original events of OG7. And here's why. It comes down to this VR illusion that Sephiroth shows the party. Keep in mind, the party doesn't have the meta-knowledge that we do. They don't know the events of how Seven is going to play out, but what they do know is Sephiroth shows them what will happen if they listen to the planet. That's why the party destroys fate, is because they think the fate that is going to happen is everyone dies. Here's why. We see Sephiroth shows the party, and by extension the player, Meteor hurtling towards Midgar. This would have been in the last couple of minutes of OG7. I want to talk about seven minutes, seven seconds to the to the end later. Uh, the party doesn't know exactly how fate is going to play out. Remember, they're they're in the dark at this point. I I would argue the only character that actually knows in a in a one to one comparison how they're going to do this is Sephiroth. Sephiroth's the only one with complete knowledge of the story of Final Fantasy VII, I think, based on my understanding right now. And Sephiroth provides the party with a couple of morsels of information. He, he tells them via that uh, illusion, if they don't stop fate, Meteor will destroy Midgar. This is why the party is so gung-ho to stop the Harbinger, because they think that the future is going to be Meteor destroying the planet. 
And Sephiroth has not given them the information to understand that they will stop Meteor from falling on the planet. He merely shows them that Meteor will fall. I'm going to borrow Maximilian Dude's uh, theory from his stream. His reading of the original Final Fantasy VII timeline is that that's actually a bad ending. Uh, that's not a good thing that happens in the original. It's essentially a bad timeline. Um, sort of like a lot of games have good endings and bad endings. The original FF7, Maximilian Dude argues, was a bad ending. And I like that argument. I think it makes a lot of sense. So the party is now going to be tasked with present, preventing this bad ending from happening in the first place. All right, and I think that's pretty cool. Uh, next up, we see Sephiroth. Uh, he shapeshifts uh, from Marco. All right, remember Marco is the robed guy. Uh, who Tifa tells Cloud about in Chapter 3 that lives next to Cloud. Marco becomes Sephiroth. This little tidbit is really important because it shows the party that Marco is going to be the one who stabs Shinra and Barret. So now Sephiroth has seeded the idea that every single Sephiroth clone that, that the party encounters is going to be dangerous, is going to be a manifestation of Sephiroth. And immediately after this, Sephiroth kills Tifa and Barret in this illusion. And this shows us, Sephiroth is saying, if you don't destroy fate, if you don't destroy the Whisper Harbinger, I will destroy the world and I will kill Barrett and I will kill Tifa. That is really, really effective storytelling. He's explicitly telling Cloud, if you don't stop me and you don't stop my plan, this is the future that is going to happen to you. This ties into the Whispers that, that you fight, uh, the three whispers that try to stop you from destroying the planet's will, the Whisper Harbinger, Whisper Rubrum, Corseo, and Verity are all manifestations of some sort of Kadage, Laws, and Yazoo. There's some discussion that, uh, and, and I thought this when I first played the game as well, that these are manifestations of Cloud, Tifa, and Barret because they all fight with a sword, their fists, and a gun. If you look at uh, Rubrum, Corseo, and Verity, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Corseo right. You can make fun of me if you want. Um, if you look at them, however, they're wielding different weapons. They also use a lot of the same attacks as Kadaj, Laws, and Yazoo from Advent Children. I'm sure you can find some videos uh, that people will be putting together doing moveset comparisons between these two. This indicates to me at the end of the game that Sephiroth or Genova, it could be either one, is now in charge of the Harbinger. And that Sephiroth may or may not have absorbed the Whispers and is now in control of them. That is a pretty good plot hook. Sephiroth now controls fate? Ooh, I like that. That sounds pretty interesting. I think there's a lot of stuff to go with there. Really quickly, I'm going to try and speed up. This one isn't a huge plot point, but I think some people are worried about the whispers and they think they're kind of dumb or out of place in Final Fantasy VII. I do too. Uh, I, it should be mentioned. Uh, they aren't... Chapter 18 is kind of a mess, especially when it talks about the whispers. That's the part where the plot, I think, really goes off the rails. I don't think it's told well. I think the idea is really good. Um, I think overall, good idea, really, really bad implementation of the idea. I don't think, the reason that the Harbinger and the reason that the Whispers don't bother me from a, a perspective of like, this doesn't seem like it would belong in the game. Here's why. 
Final Fantasy VII had a lot of this weird kind of stuff in it to begin with. OG Seven. If you remember the weapons, right? You remember Diamond Weapon, Ruby Weapon, um, uh, Ultima Weapon. I really think Weapon is going to be expanded on. Because if you look at OG Seven, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of plot detail about who and what the weapons are. It's just they're these things the planet created to defend itself. All right, that's pretty much all OG Seven tells you about Weapon. I think that weapons are going to be expanded on. Um, and, and I think the Harbingers themselves might be um, tied up in sort of like this expanded mythos that will go into fleshing out exactly what weapon is. This, I think, goes into one of the things where OG7 has a lot of good things in it, but some of the stuff isn't explained super well. And weapon happens to be one of those things that I really do want them to kind of expand on more. All right, I would like to see more world building in that regard. So I think they're I think they're seeding this idea that the planet is sentient because the planet has destiny planned out, but it also has physical defenses planned out as well in the Harbingers and in Weapon. Next up, this is one thing that that I'm really curious about. Uh, Sephiroth gives Cloud that really, really cryptic line about how you have seven seconds to the end. I wonder what you will do with them. I, I wanna I want to um take some time and give you my thoughts on that because that to me is the thing that is the hardest to really make sense of. I don't think that I've done it. I think that I've uh, I, I think that I've made a little bit of, of sense out of it. Here it is. In the edge of creation, this is a flash forward. This isn't happening concurrently uh, with what's happening at the end of Remake. This is actually what would have happened at the end of the Safer Sephiroth fight. Sephiroth tries one last time to take over Cloud's mind, and this would be the showdown in the center of the mind in OG7. All right, this is where Cloud would have performed Omni Slash on uh, that oh-so-sexy, sexy shirtless Sephiroth uh, back in 97. Keep in mind, notice, go back and rewatch that cutscene. Sephiroth explicitly tells Cloud you are not strong enough. Seven seconds until the end, what do you think you can do in those seven seconds? Sephiroth tells Cloud this because Sephiroth thinks Cloud can't win. Sephiroth wants Cloud to accept him because if Cloud accepts him, Sephiroth can manifest through Cloud. Remember, Cloud is carrying Genova's DNA inside of him. In Remake, Cloud is not strong enough to defeat Sephiroth. Notice, go back and rewatch that cutscene. Notice how easily Sephiroth blocks and parries all of Cloud's attacks without batting an eye. This to me makes perfect sense because currently Cloud, right, at the end of Remake, I'm, I'm getting a bit meta here with it, he's only around level 40, right? He should be at least 1.5 times stronger than that in most people's casual runs of OG7, right? You're probably going to end OG7 around level 50 or 60, I think, is probably where I, I ended my casual playthrough, especially if you're one of those players that likes to do everything. So I, I think when I finished Remake, I was around level 35, 36. Uh, I think this is also a meta commentary because so much of Remake is a meta commentary. Cloud literally physically is not strong enough to defeat Sephiroth currently. He also isn't mentally 
strong enough to defeat Sephiroth because remember that really cool sequence in final in, in OG7 where Tifa helps Cloud piece together his backstory? That hasn't happened yet. Cloud's experiences in the in the new timeline have made haven't made his mind strong enough to defeat Sephiroth. The battle in the center of the mind is for Sephiroth's final control of Cloud's mind and body. This would be seven seconds before Sephiroth is fully defeated in OG7, before his physical body is destroyed. This would be seven seconds before Meteor destroys the planet as well. Remember, in the plot of OG7, Holy can't emerge until Sephiroth's um, body is destroyed because Sephiroth is actually holding Holy back and not letting it stop or blunt Meteor's impact. So this seven seconds is the moment where Sephiroth wins. Sephiroth tells Cloud, you have seven seconds. What will you do with it? At this point, in this timeline that we would have just played in that flash forward, that might be another divergent timeline, Sephiroth wins. That's, that's a bad ending. Seven seconds till the end, I wonder what you will do with them. In this timeline, Sephiroth is telling Cloud, cryptically, that by the time that, that they make it to Safer Sephiroth and they stop him, Cloud only has seven seconds to defeat Sephiroth in his mind. If Cloud isn't mentally strong enough to overcome Sephiroth, Sephiroth will hijack his mind, create another body for himself using Cloud's body, because again, Cloud has Genova DNA, right? When Cloud loses this fight at the end of Remake, He's lost those seven seconds, and he isn't strong enough to overpower Sephiroth at the edge of creation. All right, Sephiroth will win, and he will achieve his goals as outlined in Advent Children, which were, and I quote, to sell the cosmos with the planet as his vessel, just as his mother did long ago. That is Sephiroth's ultimate goal. He wants to become... Uh, he wants to become one with the planet and essentially take it over. Really quickly, right? I hope you guys have been enjoying this. I'm going to try and run through my last couple of predictions really, really quickly because uh, I don't want this video to go on forever because at any moment, at any moment, Matt, Freddie, and Ashley are going to burst in here, uh, drag me kicking and screaming away from the microphone and uh, never let me back on this podcast again. Really quickly, there will be DLC with Zack. I'm, I'm going to predict that right away for a couple of reasons. Number one, from a technical standpoint, uh, Midgar is finished, right? The explorable sections of Midgar that we explored in Remake are done. Uh, we know for a fact Zack is, is on the outskirts of Midgar. By the end of FF7, uh, he's walking back into Midgar. From a real-world perspective... If Square Enix wants to do DLC for, for a remake, the most cost-effective solution is to reuse Midgar. From a real-world perspective, all that material is already finished. Sector 7, Wall Market, the Shinra building, all of that's finished, right? And fully explorable, and all they would have to do is kind of like restructure the areas that you might explore. And I think people would really like that. Crisis Core is probably one of my favorite games in the compilation series. Zack's a pretty cool character. Um, and this works on a few points, right? Zack can reuse Cloud's fighting style because, again, Cloud didn't inherit the Buster Sword and all of Zack's memories. Uh, Cloud wouldn't have his soldier skills anymore. Um, so so Zack 
becomes the Cloud character. Cloud can be retooled into uh, into another character. Uh, you could maybe make him kind of similar to Barrett, since they both would fight with guns, presumably. Or he may end up being a non-combatant. Tifa, Barrett, Aerith, all of those characters are already programmed and fully functional. They can all make appearances as party members, and they can just be adjusted to fit into whatever DL story ends up happening. Do I want to see a, a what-if storyline where Zack comes back and he and Aerith get to go on dates and he teams up with Avalanche and maybe we go back into the Shinra building and we uh, talk to Hojo and we get to like punch Hojo around a little bit because Hojo was experimented on us and you know maybe we get a maybe we get a showdown between Zack and Sephiroth. Um, you know, since that fight's already programmed, there's a lot of stuff you could do there. If this happens, I'm calling it right now, that the final boss of this DLC will be Cloud being taken control of by Sephiroth, and Cloud will be the final boss of this DLC. And in this timeline, that's where Cloud will die. Essentially, Zack will live, Cloud will die in this timeline. And I think that would be a really fun um, player punch. Last last two crazy predictions, and then I'm going to wrap this thing up because uh, I can already hear uh, Matt, Freddie, and Ashley pounding on the door to drag me away from the mic. One of two things are going to happen uh, regarding the massive character death that I think we're all expecting in this story. Either they're playing this 100% straight, and no one is going to die because you can rewrite fate, so Aerith doesn't necessarily have to die. Right? The party averts Aerith's destined fate because destiny is is dead uh that i think is actually a possibility I, I don't know how people will feel about that because a big part of final fantasy 7 and the reason why people remember Aerith's death to this point is because it's a death you have to learn to live with in the game and it it hits people hard because Aerith is is such a fun character and she's been with you for so long and you develop this connection to her and she's she's really fun and flirty and she's good in battle and all that kind of stuff and the game just takes her away from you and that's the ultimate player punch games have been doing this before final fantasy 5 actually did this way before 7 uh but i think there was something special about Aerith. so i think Aerith might live people have been wanting to to find ways to revive Aerith uh forever Alternatively, Aerith dies, right? I think I think Aerith has meta-knowledge. She knows that some sacrifices have to be made and she's willing to make that sacrifice to stop Sephiroth. Boom. Message, anvil dropped. You can't defy fate. Guess what? You thought we were going to avoid killing Aerith in glorious 1080p, you know, uh, 4K resolution? No, she's dead again. They subverted your expectations. Because uh, you didn't think Aerith was going to die, but then she dies. Or, here's my crazy, crazy thought. Someone, anyone, can and will die in the game. And that person may necessarily not be Aerith. I am slightly convinced that at this moment, the biggest left curve they could throw would be anyone in the party can die. And what the reason that has me thinking this is because of the way they handled the dress minigame. Uh, in in remake, you you essentially decide the dresses for your characters. If you don't know the when Tifa asks what should she wear for you all to go out on a nice night on the town in chapter three, determines the dress 
that she gets to wear in chapter nine, I think, is is the dress sequence. Uh, so you're you're essentially making that decision before you even know what you're deciding. So the game's kind of like teasing you, like you know, hey, make this decision, and it'll turn out to actually matter. You know, sixteen hours later in the game, uh, which I really really liked. Um, and also, uh, it does Aerith's dress the similar way. Depending on how many side quests you do, determines how nice Aerith's dress is. Essentially, how much time did you spend making a bond with Aerith? What if, depending on how you treat all of your party members, the little times that you say yes, no, get out of my face, not interested, all of these little things, what if that determines who dies in the storyline, right? Imagine how people would react if they get to the City of the Ancients and it turns out that Sephiroth doesn't stab Aerith, but stabs Tifa. Or Yuffie. Or Barrett, Or Sid. For real. And they're just dead. Imagine how shocking that would be. Right? And then the story just goes on. You can't revive them. They're gone. They're just removed from the game for eternity. People would lose their minds. And I, I think that would be... That would be such a bold statement to make that I, I'm scary about even putting the idea out there, <laughs> but just imagine it. Like, it, it would be so shocking for the game to actually kind of emotionally manipulate you in that way. And I think it would be the sort of shock value that people got back in 97 when, when Sephiroth kills Aerith. Because now we all expect that to happen. But if the game were able to subvert your expectations in some way, that would be pretty amazing. Right? Uh, last but not least, final prediction. I'm just going to leave this here. The Calm flashback will contain a section where you play as Sephiroth. Imagine how iconic it would be to actually be Sephiroth for a small chunk of the game. That'd be pretty cool. Okay, with that, that wraps up our discussion of Final Fantasy VII Remake. I have to go because the gang thinks that we are going to record an episode on Trolls 2, and they don't know that I'm doing this, so I have to, like, sneak down and pretend like uh, I don't know what's going on. So anyway, that's how... That is my um, 30-minute ramble on how Trolls 2 World Tour is going to end. going to be at least one extremely out-of-place Jack White song. No, and this was Jordan's episode. I mean, he had, like, the, the plushes and everything from Trolls 2 World Tour, and he just wasn't here to talk about it. He missed all our great predictions. He had the original little vinyl toys from the 80s with the gemstone belly buttons. It's true. He was going to talk about those. He <laughs> wasn't here. Jordan. Hey, guys. Sorry I'm late. Uh, what did I miss? I mean, we're almost finished talking about Trolls 2 World Tour, but if you want to throw in some, you know, final predictions, that'd be great. Uh... And while Matt, Freddie, and Ashley were none the wiser, I definitely spoiled Final Fantasy VII Remake. But that's going to be our little secret that came straight from my fanny pack and into your ears. Good night, everyone, as we definitely spoiled Final Fantasy VII Remake.